Section 42. Chapter 36, Part 1 of Deerbrook. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Gary Day. Deerbrook by Harriet Martineau. Section 42. Chapter 36, Part 1. The Next Day. The hours of a sleepless night were not too long for Hope to revolve what he must say and do on the morrow. He must meet Enderby, and the day would probably decide Margaret's fate. That this decision would implicate his own happiness or misery was a subordinate thought. It was not till after he had viewed Margaret's case in every light in which apprehension could place it, that he dwelt upon what the suffering to himself must be of seeing Margaret day by day, living on in meek patience, amidst the destruction of hope and happiness which his attachment had caused. When he did dwell upon it, his heart sank within him. All that had made him unhappy seemed of late to have passed away. For many months he had seen Margaret satisfied in her attachment to another, he had seen Hester coming out nobly from the trial of adversity, in which all her fine qualities had been exercised, and her weaknesses almost subdued. She had been not only the devoted wife, but patient and generous towards her foes, full of faith and cheerfulness in her temper, and capable of any degree of self-denial in the conduct of her daily life. She had been of late all that in the days of their engagement, in the days when he had dealt falsely with his own mind, he had trusted she would be. A friendship whose tenderness was life enough for them both had grown up in his soul, and he had been at peace. It had been a subject of incessant thankfulness to him that the evil of what he could now hardly consider as a false step had been confined to himself that his struggles, his strivings, the dreadful solitary conflicts of, of a few months, had not been in vain, that he had fulfilled the claim of both relations, and marred no one's peace. Now he was plunged into the struggle again. The cause was at an end, but consequences of perhaps endless wretchedness remained to be borne. His secret was known, and made the basis of untruths to which the whole happiness of his household, so victoriously struggled for, so carefully cherished by him, and so lately secured, must be sacrificed. Again and again he turned from the fearful visions of Margaret cast off, of the estrangement of the sisters, of the possible loss of some of their fair fame, from these harrowing thoughts he turned again and again to consider what must be done. The most certain thing was that he must not by word, look, pause or admission countenance to Enderby himself the supposition that he had not preferred Hester at the time she became his wife. In the present state of their attachment this was the merest justice to her. Nothing that it was in Mrs. Gray's power to reveal or a, a relation to any time later than his early, and, it might be assumed, 
superficial intercourse with the sisters, and as far as he knew, no one else, unless it were Frank, by this time in possession of the facts, had ever conceived of the true state of the case. He must decline all question about his domestic relations, except as far as Margaret was concerned. Beyond this he would allow of no inquisition, and would forbid all speculation. For Margaret's sake, no less than Hester's, this was necessary. If she should ever be Enderby's wife, it was of the utmost importance that Enderby should not, in his most secret soul, hold this information, however strongly he might be convinced that Margaret was in ignorance of it, and had never loved any but himself. There must be no admission to Enderby of that which had been truth, but which would become untruth by being first admitted now. There must be entire silence upon the whole subject of himself. As to Margaret, he did not see what could be done, but to declare his true and perfect belief that she had never loved any but Enderby. But alas! What chance was there of this testimony being received? The very point of Enderby's accusation being that they both looked, perhaps in self-delusion, at the connection with him as their security from the consequences of Hope's weakness in marrying Hester. It was all confused, all wretched, all nearly hopeless. Margaret would be sacrificed without knowing why, would have her heart wrung with the sense of injury in addition to her woe. From reflections and anticipations, Hope rose early to the great duty of the day. He told Hester that he was going to meet Enderby in the meadows, to receive a full explanation of his conduct of the preceding day, and that it was probable that he should bring home whatever tidings it might be Margaret's lot to hear. He found, during the long and anxious conversation in the meadow, that he had need of all the courage, calmness, and discretion he could command. It was a cruel trial to one whose want it had been from his childhood to converse in simplicity and godly sincerity. It was a cruel trial to hear evidence upon evidence bought of what he knew to have been fact, and to find connected with this revolting falsehoods against which he could only utter the indignation of his soul. When he afterwards reflected how artfully the facts and falsehoods were connected, he could no longer wonder at Enderby's convictions, nor at the conduct which proceeded from them. There was in Enderby this morning no undue anger, no contempt which could excite anger in another, no doubt cast by him on Hope's honour or Margaret's purity of mind, as the world esteems purity. However, this might have been before their meeting of yesterday. It was now clear that, though immovably convinced of their mutual attachment, he supposed it to have been entertained as innocently as it was formed, that Hope had been wrought upon by Mrs. Gray and by a consciousness of Hester's love, that he had married from a false sense of honour and then discovered his mistake, that he had striven naturally and with success to persuade himself that Margaret loved his friend, while Margaret had made the same effort, and would have married that friend for security and with the hope of rest in a home of her own, 
with one whom she might possibly love, and to whom she was bound by his love of herself. As for the evidence on which his belief was founded, there seemed to be no end to it. Hope could do little but listen to the detail. If he had been sitting in judgment on the conduct of an imputed criminal, he would have wrestled with the evidence obstinately and long. But what could he do when it was the lover of his sister-in-law who was declaring why his confidence in her was gone, and he must resume his plighted faith? None but those who had done the mischief could repair it, and least of all Hope himself. He could only make one single solemn protestation of his belief that Margaret had loved none but Enderby, and denying the truth of every statement was inconsistent with this. The exhibition of the evidence showed how penetrating, how sagacious, as well as how industrious, malice can be. There seemed to be no circumstance connected with the sisters and their relation to Mr. Hope that Mrs. Rowland had not laid hold of. Mrs. Gray's visit to Hope during his convalescence, his subsequent seclusion, and his depression when he reappeared, all these were noted, and it was these which sent Enderby to Mrs. Gray for an explanation, which she had not had courage or judgment to withhold, which, indeed, she had been hurried into giving. She had admitted all that had passed between herself and Mr. Hope, his consternation at finding that it was Hester who loved him and whom he must marry, and the force with which Mrs. Gray had felt herself obliged to urge that duty upon him. Enderby connected with his own observations and feelings at the time, his last summer's conviction that it was Margaret whom Hope loved, his rapturous surprise on hearing of the engagement being to Hester, and his wonder at the coldness with which his friend received his congratulations. He now thought that he must have been doomed to blindness not to have discerned the truth through all this. Then there was his own intrusion during the interview which Hope had had with Margaret. Their countenances had haunted him ever since. Hope's was full of constraint and anxiety. He was telling his intentions. Margaret's face was downcast, and her attitude motionless. She was hearing her doom. Then, after Hope was married, all Deerbrook was aware of his failure of spirits, and of Margaret's no less. It was a matter of common remark that there must be something amiss, that all was not right at home. They had then doubtless discovered that the attachment was mutual, and that they might well be wretched. Those who ought to know best had been convinced of this at an earlier stage of the intercourse. Mrs. Rowland had met at Cheltenham a young officer, an intimate friend of Mr. Hope's family, who would not be persuaded that it was not to the younger sister that Mr. Hope was married. He declared that he knew from the highest authority that Hope was attached to Margaret, and that the attachment was returned. It was not until Mrs. Rowland had shown him the announcement of the marriage in an old Blickley newspaper, which she happened to have used in packing her trunk, that he would believe that it was the elder sister who was Hope's wife. There was one person, however, who had known the whole, Enderby said, 
perhaps she was the only person who had been aware of it all, and that was his mother. In answer to Hope's exclamations upon the absurdity of this, Enderby said that a thousand circumstances rose up to confirm Mrs. Rowland's statement that her mother had known all, and had learned it from Margaret herself. Margaret had confided in her old friend as in a mother, and nothing could be more natural, nothing probably more necessary to an overburdened heart. This explained his mother's never having shown his letters to Margaret, the person for whom, as she knew, they were chiefly written. This explained the words of concern about the domestic troubles of the hopes, which now and then, during her long confinement, she had dropped in Phoebe's hearing, and even in her letters to her son. She had repeatedly regretted that Margaret would not leave her sister's house, and return to Birmingham, saying that income and convenience were not to be thought of for a moment, in comparison with some other considerations. In fact, she had, it was weakness, perhaps, but one not to be judged too hardly under the circumstances. She had revealed the whole to her daughter under injunctions to secrecy, which had been strictly observed while she lived, and broken now only for a brother's sake, and after a long conflict between obligations apparently contradictory, when from her deathbed she had welcomed Margaret as a daughter-in-law, it was in the gratitude which it was natural for a mother to feel, on finding the attachment of an only son at length appreciated and rewarded. When she had implored Mrs. Rowland to receive Margaret as a, as a sister, and had seen them embrace, her generous spirit had rejoiced in her young friend's conquest of an unhappy passion, and she had meant to convey to Priscilla an admonition to bury in oblivion what had become known to her, and to forgive Margaret for having loved any one but Philip. Priscilla could not make a difficulty at such a time, and in such a presence. She had submitted to the embrace, but her soul had recoiled from it. She had actually fainted under the shock, and ever since she had declared to her brother, with a pertinacity which he had been unable to understand, which, indeed, had looked like sheer audacity, that he would never marry Margaret Ibbotson. Philip was now convinced that he had done his sister much wrong. Her temper and conduct were in some instances indefensible, but since he had learned all this, and become aware how much of what he had censured had been said and done out of affection for himself, he had been disposed rather to blame her for the lateness of her explanations than for any excess of zeal on his account, zeal which he admitted had carried her a point or two beyond the truth in some of her aims. These statements about the con condition of Margaret's mind were borne out by circumstances known to others. When Margaret had been rescued from drowning, hope was heard to breathe as he bent over her, "'Oh, God, my Margaret!' and it was observed that she rallied instantly on hearing the exclamation, and repaid him with a look worthy of his words. This had been admitted to Enderby himself by the one who heard it, and who might be trusted to speak of it to no one else. Then it was known that when Margaret was in the habit of taking long walks alone, towards the end of the winter, 
she was met occasionally by her brother-in-law in his rides, naturally enough. Their conversation had been overheard once at least, when they were consulted about the peace of their home. How much of a certain set of circumstances should they communicate to Mrs. Hope, and whether or not Mr. Enderby was engaged to a lady abroad. Without these testimonies, Enderby felt that he had only to recur to his own experience to be convinced that Margaret had never loved him, though striving to persuade herself, as well as him, that she did. The calmness with which she had received his avowals that first evening last winter struck him with admiration at the time. He now understood it better. He wondered he had felt so little till now the coldness of her tone of her correspondence. The first thing which awakened him to an admission of it was her refusal to marry him in the spring. She shrank, as she avowed, from leaving her present residence, she might have said, from quitting those she loved best. It was clear that in marrying she was to make a sacrifice to duty, to secure innocence and safety for herself and those who were dearest to her, and that when the time drew near she recoiled from the effort. Enderby was thankful that all had become clear in time for her release and his own. The horror with which Hope listened to this was beyond what he had prepared himself for, beyond all that he had yet endured. Enderby seemed quite willing to hear him, but what could be said? Only that which he had planned. His protest against the truth of certain of the statements, and the justice of some of the constructions of facts, was strong. He declared that, in his perfect satisfaction with his domestic state, his happiness with his beloved and honoured wife, he would admit no question about his family affairs, as far as he and Hester were concerned. He denied at once and for ever all that went to show that Margaret had for a moment regarded him otherwise than as a brother and a friend, and declared that the bare mention to her of the idea which was uppermost in Enderby's mind would be a cruelty and insult which could never be retrieved. He was not going to plead for her. Bitterly as she must suffer, it was from a cause which lay too deep for cure, from a want of faith in her in one who ought to know her best, but from whom she would be henceforth best separated. If what he had been saying was his deliberate belief and judgment, Enderby, declaring that it was so, and that it was his intention to release Margaret from her engagement, gently and carefully, without useless explanation and without reproach, there was nothing more to be said or done. Hope prophesied in parting that, of all the days of Enderby's life, this was perhaps that of which he would some day most heartily repent, and while he spoke he felt that this same day was the one which he might himself find the most difficult to endure. He left Enderby still pacing the meadow, and walked homewards with a heart weighed down with a grief a grief which yet he would fain have increased to any degree of intensity by taking Margaret's upon himself. Margaret was at the breakfast-table with her sister when he entered. Her eyes were swollen, but her manner was gentle and composed. 
She looked up at Edward when he appeared, with an expression of timid expectation in her face, which went to his soul. A few words passed, a very few, and then no more was said. Yes, I have seen him. He is very wretched. He will not come, but we shall hear something, I have no doubt. A strange persuasion which I cannot remove, of a prior attachment, of a want of frankness and confidence. He will explain himself presently, but his persuasion is irremovable. Hester had much to say of him out of her throbbing heart, but she looked at Margaret and restrained herself. What must be there in that heart? To utter one word would be irreverent. The breakfast passed in an almost unbroken silence. It had not been long over when the expected letter came. Hope never saw it, but there was no need. He perfectly anticipated its contents, while to her for whom they were written they were incomprehensible. I spare you and myself the misery of an interview. It must be agonising to you, and there would be dishonour as well as pain to me in witnessing that agony. If, as I fully believe, you have been hitherto blind to the injustice of your connecting yourself with me from a sense of duty and expediency, when you have not had a first genuine love to give, I think you will see it now, and I pity your suffering in the discovery. There is only one point on which I wish or intend to hang any reproach. Why did you not, when I had become entitled to your confidence, lay your heart fully open to me? Did I not do so by you? Did I not reveal to you even the transient fancy which I entertained long ago, and which I showed my faith in you, her friend, by revealing? If you had only done the same, if you had only let me know, without a hint as to the object, that you had been attached, and that you believed I might succeed to your affections in time, if you had done this, I do not say that we should then have been what I so lately trusted were to, we were to be, for my soul is jealous, has been made so by what I thought you, and will bear none but a first, and an entire, and an exclusive love. But in that case I should have cherished you in my inmost heart, as all that I have believed you to be, though not destined for me. But I do not blame you. You have done what you meant to be right, though from too great regard to one set of considerations. You have mistaken the right, and have sacrificed me. I make allowance for your difficulty, and for my own part, pardon you, and testify most sincerely and earnestly to the purity of your mind and intentions. Do not reject this parting testimony. I offer it because I would not have you think me harsh, or suppose that passion has made me unjust. I love you too deeply to do more than mourn. I have no heart to blame except for your want of confidence. Of that I have a right to complain, but for the rest spare yourself the effort of self-justification. It is not needed. I do not accuse you. You were right in saying yesterday that I love you still. I shall ever love you, be our separate lives what they may. God bless you. 
P.E. "'Will you not wait, my dearest Margaret?' said Hester, when, within half an hour of the arrival of Enderby's letter, she met her sister on the stairs, with the reply in her hand, sealed and ready to be sent. "'Why such haste? The events of your life may hang on this day, on this one letter. Can it be right to be so rapid in what you think and do?' "'The event of my life is decided,' she replied. "'Unless... no. The event of my life is decided. I have nothing more to wait for. I have written what I think, and it must go.'" End of section 42